Today's episode is brought to you by Arrowhead Coffee. Canadian veteran-owned Arrowhead Coffee. Coffee that inspires and supports veterans, first responders, and their families. To order your delicious Arrowhead Coffee, visit arrowhead.coffee. Now that's not arrowhead.com or arrowhead.ca, it's arrowhead.coffee on the Googleizer. And save 10% with discount code OPTR10. That's Oscar, Papa, Tango, Romeo, 10. And get yours today. At Operation Tango Romeo, we are on a mission to save lives and relieve pain by making help for PTS injuries easily accessible with a vision of a world where the path to recovery is clear. I am your OPSO, Mark Meinke, and this is Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast. And we are rolling in three, two, one, cue music. And we are rolling with another episode of Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast, live streaming on Facebook and other channels. Later, if you want to see the or hear the entire show, you go to OperationTraumaRecovery.org, and there is a full show list there with links to all kinds of different podcast platforms so that you can pick your favorite. Today on the show, we have a veteran who is also a lawyer, and he is a badass. We have my friend, Philip Miller. Thanks for being here, man. My pleasure to be here, and uh, thankful to be able to speak with you and your audience. Well, we've got a lot of ground to cover, and um, uh, let's just start with a little bit of uh, figuring out the ground and talk about your military service for a little bit. So you were a member of the Royal Canadian Regiment. You were a, an officer. We'll forgive you oh. for that. <laughs> yeah, well, I actually started as a reserve soldier in Queen's Own Rifles in Toronto. Okay. When I was in high school, I remember taking the subway down to uh, Moss Park Armories in my combats. And back then, it wasn't quite as cool to be a soldier and I remember people looking at the uniforms in the subway, but still being pretty proud of that. And then, uh, then ended up going to university. And after that, uh, was it straight to the Royals then? Yeah, well, you know, we had a bit of fight at my dad lost his company. Uh, so I kind of started off as a conservative. Let's make lots of money. My dad lost his company. Uh, and I saw how that devastated him. And then so I became a bit of a hippie for a couple of years uh, in university, grew my hair long, a couple of earrings, smoked a lot of drugs. And then somebody offered me a challenge that I bet you couldn't uh, do this officer training program in Gagetown. And I was like, well, I think I can. I just went in with long hair and somehow snuck through the process. And in the first, uh, I think the first three weeks of um, that, that officer training in Gagetown with the Reg Force guys, I was almost kicked off the course five times for attitude. Uh, but then in the end of the 72, 26 of us graduated, I ended up getting given the sword. So, you know, I think it shows that there's, there's room for attitude uh, or, or original thought in the military in some cases. And then spent 10, 11 years uh, with the Royals, doing a variety of things, fun stuff, lots of Yugo tours, other, uh, other operations. I was in charge of our sniper platoon and Pathfinders. Uh, was in... Uh, it was I. By the time I came in, they had just disbanded, or they were just disbanding the Airborne Regiment. Yeah, and so they were kind of quitting. 95, 96. I was one of the, yeah, so I was one of the the young officers that were put in the Airborne Light Infantry, sorry, the Light Infantry Battalion, and you know, try to deal with the component uh, that switched in, which had some interesting legal, uh, sorry, leadership challenges, but amazing people uh, from all over the country that I'm still friends with. Oh, you know, and then in the end, served in a bunch of places, ended up becoming a lawyer because of some medical issues, can't see out of my eye, uh, my right eye. And then um, became, was a prosecutor. And uh, I was supposed to stay in the military and be like the legal advisor to uh, General Hillier because he was a buddy of mine. 
But then uh, they ended up uh, medically releasing me. I became a prosecutor, opened up my own firm. Now I do some advocacy work for vets when I can. And, uh, you know, when I was a, cr- a prosecutor, I thought it would be a continuation of that white hat that we thought we, we wore when we were in the Army. And then I just realized I was putting a lot of innocent people in jail because their lawyers fucking sucked. And uh, then I went into my own practice. And now, uh, if you check out our website, you see that we, we, take on a bun- we take on kind of organizations that bully people and I've tried to embody that spirit we we received in the infantry in the practice of law. The criminal legal profession is such an odd place because either you're defending people that um, are sometimes guilty, probably usually, mm-hmm. and uh, or you're putting people in jail that are occasionally innocent. And because it is not a system of truth and justice, it's a system of who's the better lawyer. It's a, it's a competition. It's a blood sport with people. Yeah, money and money is justice, you know. And so, you know, for a lot of the legal aid clients, you know, who don't have lawyers who want to work for them, if, if they get picked up in the wrong situation, they're just going to have a criminal record, and never get out of it. And I've helped quite a few veterans who, with dealing with some with some trauma and struggles, have like some young young cops who want to assert their testosterone because they were never in under fire like our uh, brothers and sisters, and so. They can be very harsh to uh, – I have one guy who was having a breakdown, arguing with his wife, and uh, he was calling a support person. And these cops showed up, you know, brand-new cops, and they're just ordering him to, to drop his cell phone. No weapons, no allegation of any violence. He's like, look, I'm just having a breakdown. I need to talk to my support person. They tased him like five times, beat the shit out of him, charged him with resisting arrest. And we have, that lawsuit is, is going on right now. Uh, and they're doing everything they can to cover their ass, but this guy just needed help, not a beating, and uh, that type of stuff keeps me going. Well, that's why mature cops that have been around for a while, um, mm-hmm. they really have to keep an eye on the young ones that are still trying to assert their manliness, I suppose. And when they meet a um, a veteran, especially somebody that was combat arms or infantry, <clears throat> pardon me, uh, it gets into a bit of a dick measuring contest mm-hmm. and uh, a brand new cop measuring dicks with a combat veteran. That's, that's not going to work out very well for them, but um, it's, it's damned unfortunate. It's just egos coming to play mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah. Uh, what sort of uh, advocacy cases have you done? I represented a bunch of uh, females who were abused by um a military medic who on their entrance medicals was taking significant liberties. Oh my God. And, uh, sued, uh, the military on that. They put up a fight, uh, but in the end got them some good, uh, uh, some good results. I've represented a few guys on court marshals from Afghanistan who, uh, you know, you, you guys would know the cases, but I won't talk about them publicly. I've helped some people avoid those charges. I've helped, I help a bunch, I help a bunch of vets do veterans appeals, but there's, there's almost too many for me to help out with because uh, everybody's unhappy with it. But, you know, I have had some success getting people that post-traumatic stress uh, diagnosis many years after. Because a lot of us in the infantry, like when we got out, we didn't want to tell people that we were hurting or what we went through. And, you know, so we didn't, nobody really helped us through that exit in a way that maximized what we were entitled to. So sometimes we can revisit that and get them some uh, Picking up that phone for help is the toughest thing in the world, especially the uh, vintage of when we went through. You know, you were a little bit after me. I went through in uh, 91. But um, asking for any help, even getting a Band-Aid, you know, uh, people had labeled you as a malingerer. But my leg is dangling here from a tendon. Ah, malingerer, walk it off. But I, you know, I just have a case. uh, I'm doing a case now, and it's uh, it's compelling because, and I I didn't think of it back when you know we were supposed to be hard chargers, right? If somebody was hurt, we're like get over it. But uh, I have a case of a a First Nations gentleman who got out of the reserve, was like the pride of his community, uh, was uh, well respected in his unit, but got one injury, and he just couldn't get over the injury, and they gave him a category. And then his that that community now ostracized him and started kind of calling him. And you know you're kind of trapped in your base, right? And you see your brothers go and train, you can't train, and they start calling you. They start calling him like lazy Indian, drunk, all of this stuff, and you can't leave. And uh, 
being in that situation for six months can really cause, we understand now, you know, mental trauma, you know, that kind of uh, constant harassment. And, but he, he just needed to get out so soon that he just put in a voluntary release and ran. We were just able to get him uh, some compensation because the chain of command was ignoring his complaints. And, you know, we've probably all, all seen and heard the same thing. The attitude has gotten better over the years, and I think um, leadership has gotten better over the years. But uh, back in the 90s, nobody, and certainly before, nobody was talking about PTSD or any of it. It was all 100% suck it up, buttercup. And that, unfortunately, is still hanging on a little bit. Um, when it comes to the military covering its ass and burying its soldiers to to save the brass, um, there's so many examples of that. Is is that been your experience as well, where the people at the top end up never facing <laughs> consequences for their actions and then end up blaming the people below them? You know, I think that happened a bit more in the 90s. I think now that it's almost been reversed a bit. Interesting. In that, like, the top people are getting, you know, uh, drawn and quartered left, right, and center for things that were inappropriate but not that bad. Like, 410 is, is a recent example. Like, uh, you know, he did something 30 years ago. So I, now I think the leadership, if they make one mistake, one thing, they're just gone. And so we're putting political correct uh, – politically correct or, or sterile leaders in there. And uh, the difficulty our military has to face is, you know, it's one thing to have a logistics officer uh, who's never done anything wrong lead troops. But at some point you've got to get guys to charge a machine gun on a hill. And uh, most of us who have been through all of that, you know, have made a mistake in our past. But, you know, I, I, I'm concerned for the military because people aren't being promoted if they made mistakes in the past. Right? And so they're just looking for squeaky clean. And I don't know how that's going to lead to inspiring confidence in the troops. Squeaky clean and infantry do not go hand in hand. It's, uh, that just doesn't work. You know? uh, yeah, but you can be honorable. Like, and I used be to honorable. say that when I, would, uh, when I would talk to, I remember talking to a bunch of these airborne guys. They're like, you some liberal who wants to follow the Geneva Conventions? And I'm like, no, you, like, you, don't, you can be tough and not be a bully. But following the Geneva Conventions actually will save our lives, uh, as they did to the U.S. in World War II. They followed the Geneva Conventions, and the Germans surrendered. The Russians didn't, and they fought to the last man. So, you know, <clears throat> being a, a soldier doesn't mean being a monster. You have to have honor and follow the rules. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm a little concerned about where our military is going these days. Well, you can't sanitize the job. The job is mm-hmm. killing, and mm-hmm. we... We avoid that word like the plague, but that's the mm-hmm. goddamn job. Your job is, uh, we, we call it winning by attrition or uh, close with and destroy collateral the damage. Collateral damage. It's fucking killing, period, the yeah. end. And uh, you, you win by killing more of them than they kill of yours. And uh, th- that's the job. To do that job uh, is not natural. You know, um, we're... We're just not wired for that. Uh, so when we do it and we're forced to do it and we do it well, we do it effectively, that it creates a price to pay, you know, and it's, mm-hmm. it's the people doing that job that bear that burden for the rest of their goddamn lives. And you know what's uh, interesting about that is um, just thinking about it now, because I've read on Gro- Kill- uh, Grossman's On Killing and, you know, how they had to, um, I don't know if you've ever read that book on no. Killing by Grossman. It's a Marine Corps colonel, but he talked about, in the Civil War, that a lot of the muskets had 16 uh, balls loaded into them because they didn't want to kill each other, and they'd only ever shot at targets. And so what they had done, that's why they made those paper targets look like humans, so you could kind of train the human mind to shoot at a human because it's not natural, and a lot of guys didn't want to do it. But where it might hurt us in terms of our trauma or our mental health is that everybody has to pretend like they're cool with it. You know what I mean? Like you're trained, you know, and it's like you can't say, okay, I don't, I don't want to do this, but I will do it because it's necessary. And so you don't have those conversations about how unnatural it is to actually stick a bayonet into somebody. We all have to pretend that we love it. We're amazing at it. And if somebody has an issue, it's seen as weakness rather than just normal. Yeah, just being a fucking human being. 
you know, um, it was a tough, tough, tough transition for me because I wanted to be a medic, you know, Mm -hmm. um, uh, but I washed out of the selection process and I said, oh, well, I've already had the going away party. So what else do you got? They said infantry. Mm-hmm. And I said, I'll take it. Uh, what is it? But I'll take it, whatever it is. And mm-hmm. and off I went. And um, it, had I gone to the first or the second right off the bat after battle school, I think I would have fared better. But mm-hmm. uh, they put me to the third. It's like, oh, shit. So not only did I have to transition, um, I had to transition all the way to um, the extra light infantry battalion. And mm-hmm. um, it was it was too much. It wasn't until I got posted the first that I kind of found my bearings and was able to uh, adapt to my environment properly. Um, but it's... Uh, it's a hell of a thing. That article that I sent you um, about our tour um, mm-hmm. and being exposed to the red dirt, uh, the carcinogenics and whatnot, was that the first time that you had heard that we were exposed to that? I'd heard some rumblings about it, I think, while I was in Petawawa, uh, late 90s, but I hadn't heard uh, the details you talked about and the cover-up process in it. Like, I know there was a cover-up of a lot of deaths, in Croatia because the, the Canadian population didn't want to hear about it. Yeah. So they were minimizing the medac and what was happening with the Van Dees and, and the second battalion, the RCR. But yeah, as soon as you said that to me, I found it, you know, I wanted to chat with you as soon as possible to see if uh, there's something there. Um, Cause one of my, one of my old guy buddies, Bona there, he's doing that mefloquin. Yeah. Dave Bona. Mefloquin thing going. Um, very similar. Yeah. So I'm interested. I'm interested in it, but it's just very hard to get over that threshold when you're trying to bring a class action to the government. They have so many resources, and everything yeah. has to be done on spec, and it's, it's tough. But I'm gonna I'm gonna do a bit more research into that and see um, what happened. But I haven't seen too many people in my experience who were claiming a disability from the red dirt. Like I didn't see them in, or I haven't been. Uh, introduced to them from one RCR or three RCR or two RCR. Yeah. But I'm sure they're out there or they didn't even know that happened. Well, there's so many, I mean, everybody knows people that are dying or, um, fighting mm-hmm. cancer right now. So who knows, you know, uh, right yeah. now we got a, a brother that was there that's in stage four, um, for the third time and final time he's in palliative care. So he's not going to make it. And, um, you're always left wondering, well, is it, is it because of what we were exposed to? It's lymphatic cancer, so it kind of seems like it's a fit. Um, but the the thing is... Or is we, it from pepper potting in Gagetown on the old napalm <laughs> uh, fields there that are still contaminated? Or Yeah, and they and they fought know. that for years too. Say, deny, or drinking deny, deny. out of the... Jesus, you know how many... T- well, you guys all know this. It's, it's, I don't talk to vets in this that much, so I'm sure you guys have all, but you remember when we had our ponchos and we'd light those things to heat up the canteens? Oh, yeah. Yeah, the little yeah, heat the, tabs. The, the, the heat tabs. Yeah, toxic. Those shit. things are so toxic, and they would just be coming right up through the poncho into our faces we're breathing. It's like, well, yeah, tent eye, you when you're in the 10 man tent group, uh, mm. you know, everybody's got tent eye. That's fucking some yeah. kind of poisoning, you know, yeah. oh, God. <laughs> the, with, the, with the burning eyes, but uh, yeah. just like, you know, an aluminum pot syndrome. But <laughs> uh, <laughs> remember when you washed the pots? I'm just reminiscing with you, but. Yeah. When we do that, that canteen cup, I'd wash it. And then you come back and you put your finger in and black stuff would be on your finger. Yeah. Right. And but you pour your water in and drink out of it. I don't know how screwed up we are from all of that. But I'm going to look into that uh, red dirt thing more and see if there's something. We need to find a doc, the doc who is on the ground, who raised the concerns. Like if we can find the right medical person. Who, he's still who in Calgary. He's it. still alive and still in Calgary, I've heard. Um, I do know that, uh, like for sure, I I absolutely remember we we got back uh and we we're in the parade the indoor parade square and everybody's signing this document uh, and, and you read it and it's like oh for fuck's sakes really mm-hmm. <laughs> you know saying oh yeah uh, by the way this document uh, says that uh, you acknowledge that you have been exposed uh potentially to these pcbs and it may or may not kill you from cancer um, that's Do we have, have you seen those documents? Like, can we get our hand on some of those original documents? Yeah, there's a couple of them left. Uh, what they did is they ripped them all out of our, like, I remember signing it 100%. Mm-hmm. But some of uh, the troops were reservists that were attached to us, and they got RTU'd. Ah, so right. when they got RTU'd with their med docs, some of these have survived. 
not all of them were shredded. But just the fact that they pulled them out of the docks, you know, out of our files and shredded them, mm-hmm. just that. Well, we have to itself. see them. Like, yeah, yeah how, the legal question is, how do we demonstrate that that was done? And if we can demonstrate that that was done, that's, that's a nice step forward. Well, there was an investigation uh, done in the, somewhere in the early 2000s, which, of course, uh, there was no consequences at the end, and uh, it was just kind of went away. There was not a conclusion to the investigation. Mm. It just kind of went away, because I followed up on this again and again. Um, but cover your ass mode was just in, in full swing. Uh, I don't really understand that, because, like, let's say you're a colonel or whatever. Like, it's not your money if you have to pay compensation. Who, you know, like who's making that call just as a leader, you have troops who are exposed. You want them to be covered. Like, why would I order somebody to pull that out of a file? Because it's not my money. Well, because right? they, like, they knew that they were, because they were culpable. Because they knew that yeah. the shit was contaminated when they ordered us yeah. to, to fill sandbags with it. So not only did yeah. we fill the sandbags with contaminated soil. Uh, so what it was, uh, how it, it wasn't just bauxite, because uh, if you mm-hmm. look up bauxite, it's like, yeah, we're not sure if that's toxic or not by itself. But it was what was underneath the bauxite, like the, these mm-hmm. pits, because we needed the sandbags. So we went wherever we could to find sand and super rocky terrain. So not a lot of sand, mm-hmm. um, but there were um, uh, toxic waste dumps. Okay. Mm. Uh, where they dug a big uh, pit. They'd put old transformers and stuff, which are, yeah. of course, they have fucking PCBs in them. And then um, uh, so, the, <laughs> and then they would fill it up with sand again, and that was the sand that we were using for goddamn sandbags. We'd go in there mm. with heavy equipment, um, uh, load it on the trucks, uh, loose, and then take it to the uh, uh, to the company camps and 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 dump it and say, "Okay, get filling those sandbags, boys." And um, and our platoon is actually the one that filled the sandbags for pretty much the whole battalion, so hyper concentrated, right? And um, so they knew because once they got to the bottom of the pit, they're like, "Holy fuck, there's transformers down there! Uh, nothing to see here. Just pretend you didn't see it. <laughs> you know, throw a blanket mm. over them or something, and uh, and ship the sand out." Uh, e- either way, we need to do this. So they knew it was contaminated, which is why. Um, and who, at what level those orders came down from, we don't know. All we know is that the CEO made us do it. And but it seems, yeah. So, but like if you had to sign it, yeah. But then you would deploy back. So the CEO, maybe when he gets back to battalion, are they saying that the CEO then decided to pull them off? That's when, when it happened. Got, when yeah. he got back, yeah. We, we, we got back on the ground. So we got back home. Um, uh, the very first thing, like before anything, uh, was uh, we're in the, the like literally off the bus, like off the plane, on the bus, off the bus, into the parade square, sign the document. And we're all like, oh my fucking God, really? Because none of us mm-hmm. had a clue, right? Yeah, yeah, and um, that we were living in, in this contaminated crap. Who was the CEO back then? Dykel, Mike Dykel, that uh, living in Lethbridge last I heard, owns a furniture yeah. company. Uh, mm. Just a, just absolutely famous for being a dick. But, mm-hmm. um, but was it Mike's call or was it from up above? Nobody has any clue. But, yeah. um, well, Mike would know. But yeah. uh, oh, yeah. we might have to subpoena him at some point. We'll see if uh, this has legs. Well, I took it to Witten Law uh, years ago because there's 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 groups of us where this conversation keeps coming up and people mm-hmm. stomp their feet, but nothing actually happens. So I uh, took it to Witten Law and they look at it and they're like, "Yeah, so long ago," and I don't know, and so they uh, they declined to, mm-hmm. to 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 jump on it. But I don't know anybody else that's even gone as far as I've gone, as far as uh, trying to get something going with this freaking shit. Because we need it, the whistleblower. Like we need the um, we need the one guy who will say that he was that's the mo in the, in the MIR, the medical officer. He needs to if, if he'll be the whistleblower then, and then we got to get the expert to say that uh, you know the likelihood of. Uh, of illness or trauma would come from that, and then we might have something. Well, base, best case scenario on this, even if, even if um, the mo overreacted, and mm-hmm. even if the dirt wasn't contaminated, 
What about the psychological injury of we all fucking signed it? Mm-hmm. And it was torn out of our documents and shredded. I mean, that by itself is an well, injury. Well, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. It's, it's, That's why we got to find terrible. an original copy of that document. Yeah. Right? Because that document is the proof that uh, somebody decided to say you work with PCBs, which is... Well, that can be uh, all that stuff has been found. It's it's already been exposed by the uh, the commission that did the investigation. So, um, if we go down this road, all that stuff already exists. And if it doesn't, I can re. I, I got my contacts. Yeah. I know who has. Give me a dogs. copy of that, and I'll uh, take a look at it and see if I can help out. Not that I need any more work to do, but this is a big one. But it does seem like something that's that really matters. Well, it's uh, all of us are just waiting for the cancer shoe to drop. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, and should we be waiting or should we not be waiting for that? Are we actually at risk or are we not at risk? We fucking don't know. You know, if you look at the um, mesothemiona, the asbestos cases that are out there. Okay. Right? Like there's, there's a lot of mass torts in the U.S. and Canada related to asbestos. So for the people who don't have anything now, you know, I wouldn't, you know, stress about it. Like... The, the people who had it bad got it then, but it's very hard to articulate if if the exposure increases your risk by 15% or 20%, right? Did you get it because of that or did you get it because of – it's difficult. So I don't want people to, to stress about it, but, uh, you know, if, if, if you have a disproportionate amount of people who died uh, who were involved in it, then we have something and their families deserve more. In our audience right now, I just got a um, – I won't say his name because I don't know if he wants it said, but uh... – to the fellow that just says uh, you are in possession of those documents, please either email them to me um, or email them directly to uh, Philip Miller. His uh, phone number is on the uh, ticker going across the bottom there. Um, or you can look me up, uh, mark underscore mindkey at yahoo.ca. But uh, if you could please send those documents that are in your possession to me or to Philip, uh, either way, we'll, we'll we'll get them to him. And, and thank you, brother, for... Uh, for letting me know. I, I tell you, like a lot of us know, and, and there, a lot of us have some documents and one of my buddies has got uh, a lot of documents about this actually. So, mm-hmm. um, uh, because of the show, I've been, I've sort of become uh, a central figure for this sort of thing. So people come to me and they give me information and, um, and away you go. Now, um, back to your, to your Balkan tours. So the one I'm talking about was up, Harmony. It was on the Croatian side, uh, summer tour of 94. You mentioned Nidak, Midak Pocket, which was also up Harmony one year prior, a summer tour mm-hmm. where the biggest battle since Korea happened. And, um, and of course, it was swept under the carpet. And uh, even though at the 2nd Battalion they have, uh, you know, the Midak drill hall or whatever, and it, it's acknowledged there, it's still um, not in the public lexicon. Uh, people are not aware of uh, Medak Pocket and and what that was and the the heroes of Medak Pocket, you know. Um, so, which uh, you said you were in uh, Yugo? Uh, yeah, we uh, took over from, probably from you. I came in with one RCR in '94, taken over from. Uh, oh, for uh, so you were Roto Five. Your first. Yeah. That was your first one. Yeah. Yeah, you did take I was over down from us. Down in um, Benkovac. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's right. All that area there. But, you know, you have that movie, The King of Krasna. I don't know, like that. They've tried to make a couple of the movies. But, you know, the Medak Pocket, we should get some of uh, your listeners or people who have an artistic flair. And let's try and write up a script and make it, you know, a little like, you know, our Americans are good at making movies about their stories. Canadians aren't quite as good at making uh, something good. But with today's tech, you can make a you can make a movie pretty cheap. We should write a script for the Medoc and try and make it like the Lone Survivor or something. Yeah, and, something uh, like that. Or uh, I, I would love to get Paul Gross to do um, a movie on on Medoc. Another movie that needs to be done is mm-hmm. uh, Tommy Prince. I mean, mm-hmm. what, you know the how important that would be for the Indigenous people of Canada. God. Why has know? that been done? Oh, oh my God. <laughs> You know, uh, and for anybody that doesn't know who Tommy Prince uh, was, Tommy Prince uh, was a member of my battalion, and he he was the Rambo of the day. He was uh, he was a native fella, and mm. absolutely storied. I mean, the the who knows 
where the line is between truth and and um, and myth with this guy. But he was a super soldier and a half. Um, the the exploits in uh, I think World War One and two. No, it was World War Two in Korea. He did both. This freaking guy, and then ended up dying drunk and homeless on the streets of Winnipeg. Absolutely tragic. That's a that's a compelling movie. Oh my god. You know, um, it's so important. I often wonder why I, I loved, I worked with the Gurkhas for a while. And, uh, you know, I was always trying to find a way to integrate because if you take somebody from the reserve and then you put them in kind of a, a battalion, which is very regimented, they don't fit that well in that peacetime battalion. But, you know, neither do the Gurkhas when they go to a British unit. Uh, but it would have been cool to have our own Canadian unit of, you know, indigenous fighters who could live oh. in the bush and be spectacular, like the Rangers. But we should have made it into a, a more prestigious unit where they all compete to get in. And, you know, I, we need a little bit more imagination in that area. Oh, man, I just got chills just thinking about that. And, and you're so right. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's funny. I've never made that parallel uh, before. Mm-hmm. But uh, Imagine if we had a giant competition, like kind of like a, a combine for picking an NFL tour. And so all young 18 to 30-year-olds could come in from all of the reserves and they'd wear their patches. Right. And then based yeah. on the selection, like we would pick a hundred of the best from Canada and we put them into their own unit. You know what I mean? And they would train, but it's not like just follow our kind of white man, old Sergeant major, you know, or RCR paint and rocks bullshit, you know, <laughs> but then allow them to kind of be like the best patrol guys. Like yeah. and they would, they could wear like a little patch of their tribe or their nation on the uniform. Like, oh. like what we do with the Gurkhas. Wouldn't that be fucking cool? Oh, fuck. That'd be so good. And uh, I mean, there's, um, I have a guest that's going to be coming on. She's First Nations and uh, I, I just can't goddamn wait to mm. to have her on here. She's so interesting. But um, our, our, our Indigenous people, our First Nations people, there's, what better way to bring a sense of pride and purpose? You know, what better healing for their community than to mm-hmm. have representatives that are, um, raised up by in 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 film, you know, mm-hmm. like so the, the the story of Tommy Prince would provide so much freaking pride, so much healing for the native community. It wouldn't even be funny, you know. Like it would be. We just incredible. have to make sure some namby pamby Canadian doesn't make it into like, uh, you know, it has to be hardcore, like capture the essence of it. Like people will. Uh, I'm, I'm going to look into that because I think that should be a movie. Well, you know what? Uh, for any of my listeners, uh, if you have a contact, a way to get a hold of Paul Gross, because he did that, uh, that what's that, uh, the Afghanistan? Yeah, the he Psalm one. Yeah, he's done a couple. Yeah, Hyena Road, you know. Uh, it's just that it, I, Paul's good, but it's, you know, somehow it's a little just Well, maybe as Canadian. a producer then, you know. It's uh, a little Canadian. Somebody. Like, let's get uh, Mark Wall, you know, let's get some, some hardcore ass kickers or, or find our own, right? Uh, yeah. But, yeah, I know Paul Gross might sponsor it, fund it. But I could get funding for it if we had a good script. I just need somebody to write the script. Fuck. We'll have to do this. There's a task for you. Let's write a script together on this. God damn, I like it. You're a big, you're a big thinker. I like it. <laughs> but just think about how powerful it would be. I mean, just for Canadiana, for Canadian culture, as a recruiting tool for the military. And there's got to be grant money for that shit. Oh, God, yeah. No, we could get grant. And Europe likes it. Like, you know, if you Germany, and they like that First Nations story. Yeah. Like they would eat up that type of movie if you captured it well. Like, uh, you know, Germans would really like it because he was killing Germans too. Like, interesting. Yeah, it, well, it beat the hell out of a Saving Private Ryan, you know. But uh, yeah. to to have uh, somebody playing Tommy Prince and and him being like the whole story, it's all from Tommy's point of view, and mm-hmm. you know, um, just what power, what healing, what pride that would come with mm-hmm. that. And our uh, First Nations community, goddamn, deserve it. You know, they, mm-hmm. they fucking deserve to have uh, some really strong and powerful um, male role models. Role models. Thank you. That's yeah. what I was groping for so awkwardly. Yeah. But uh, they, they and got, that type of movie, if done properly, would encourage more entrance into the military, too. Which, it would. Which is good. But I, I'm struck by this when I was a lot of great people, obviously, in our in our history. But we we had one guy. I'll never forget it. He came down from way up north, the Inuit, and uh, he was selected from his community. He was given the key, and he came down. He was in our unit, 3RCR, and we were doing winter acts, and the guy could, like, work in minus 30 with a T-shirt, and he was a, just had amazing skills we didn't have. 
Yeah. But because of the circadian rhythm, he was just very bad at waking up <laughs> at that time. Right. But then we all know it, like kind of somebody who is well-intentioned, you know, warrant officer just said, you know, charge, charge. Right. And then, and then extra drill, extra drill. And so that he just ended up getting like eight charges in a row. And we just kind of, and then we sent him back fit, like he was kicked out of the unit, but we didn't have that flexibility to say, okay, we need, you know, a variety of skill sets. Let's, let's work with this. Yeah. The guy was like 20, yeah. you know, and never been out of his community. And then, you know, how extra drill, extra drill can be with, you know, with, with some hardcore warrant officers. Uh, and that, there's a bit of a cultural that. difference between the Patricias and the Royals. And, and, and that kind of touches on it right there. The, um, and, and I don't know if that's still the truth. It probably is. Uh, but the Royals will call us dirty Patricias and cowboys and all that. And we're like, yeah, we, we are actually, <laughs> that's, that's about right. But, um, mm. we're, we're still by the book, still dis- disciplined, but, but not quite, but not as we're not as, um, straight line. Like we can think outside of the box at least a little and, yeah. and improvise, adapt, and overcome and, and push the envelope of the rules, uh, t- to a degree. Whereas the Royals, that's just not the culture. No, you were, our, yeah, we did not have the dynamic thinkers that uh, we had the rule followers, which, which was rewarded, uh, during a few decades, but yeah, the armored and the Patricias had the, the big strategic thinkers and the, you know, the RCR officers were like, never pass a fault. I was like, fuck, you guys are so boring. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, um, th- that is the cultural difference right there. Uh, did you, uh, did you serve at the same time as Jody Middick? Did you know him? Uh, I've never met the man. I've heard, uh, I've read, I've read some of his stuff, but I, I don't know him personally. No. He was on the show uh, a couple episodes ago. It was, uh, it was a great show. Sound quality wasn't perfect, but it was a, it was a really good show. So what are you working on right now? Uh, veteran advocacy? What's, uh, what's on your plate if you're allowed to talk about it? No, I can, you know, I, I think I mentioned to you, like I was involved, um, years ago with, with advocating to get veterans cannabis coverage because uh, of the suicides we had. Like, so that was something that, you know, and I was an ex-prosecutor and ex-officer, so it was an unusual, but then I got turned sour by, you know, veterans kind of taking advantage of veterans to make money. And I think that's um, something that needs to be talked about more honestly, like how many vets are just, you know, being, being force fed cannabis for cash uh, and I don't think it's their path uh, to the next stage in their life. Like, I think it helps, but I think we need a, a more ethical approach to, to medical cannabis. Like, I get my three grams a day. You know, it's a lot. Like, I end up giving it to people who can't afford it. But I hope that veterans doesn't get wind of that. But so I'm trying to help, uh, you know, I want to help vets kind of get out of that victim mentality where everybody is against them. Everything sucks because the best part of us is that we solve problems. We dealt with adversity and it's something happens that when you, you get out and you have a struggle. Now I see it with some in the police forces. Like there's some police forces that have 25% of their people on um, LTD, you know, but they're getting micro traumas every day. But once you get put in that category of you're a post-traumatic stress victim how do you get back into the tribe and so i'm trying to encourage people to see i'm a trauma survivor but you know i don't i want to help people get out of that constantly complaining about liberals immigrants veterans affairs this that and just go out there and start helping people uh you know that's what i'm trying to do these days it's a negative feedback loop and Mm -hmm. uh when somebody has to like uh, right now i'm going for my dec as um after four years of uh, working my ass off to try to get my head right, I mm-hmm. have enough self-awareness to understand where my limitations are. And mm-hmm. I get it. I know what I can do. Like, I can do this, what I'm doing here. But I yeah. have to do it on my time, on my pace, at my schedule. Uh, and mm-hmm. there's days that I fucking can't, you know, uh, days I can't get out of goddamn bed. So I know what my personal limits are. And um, going back into the corporate world, there's no way for me to do that healthily. Like I'll self, uh, and I, my self-awareness is strong enough now that I get that. But right now I'm in a fight for that DEC. And um, that is something where if you have to fight for what is right, 
um, it's just not in us. Uh, like for myself, it's so, so common to have no ability for administrative stuff. I mean, my taxes are so far overdue. I don't owe any money, but they're like, they're like, I, I got 10 years of tax returns that I got to get on top of. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm, I'm overwhelmed by it. You know, I just can't, I mm-hmm. just can't do it. But that is so freaking common. Um, yeah. when it comes to being intimidated by administrative crap, you just want it to work the first time. If it doesn't work the first yeah. time and, and that's the, uh, the downside of veterans affairs, which I'm actually a fan of because the programs are there, but if they say no, the first time mm. that's, that, that's, you know, you just don't have anything left in the tank and they mm-hmm. count on that. It seems, <laughs> you know, no, well, and the tech and then, you know, you introduce little tech challenges oh, like, gosh. You know, at home and it just, it's overwhelming and really it's solvable. Like it would be nice if they just hired like 50 people who are highly capable, who could just go around and like do that basic shit to help people get over that hump. Yeah. Right. Cause you just can't get over that hump of, like you say, like you got 10 tax returns about it's like, it just, I know what it's like to, to be overwhelmed in that. It's, uh, but you know, I don't know what the solution well, is. I've asked for help with those tax returns from Veterans Affairs a few times. I've got nothing, but because um, I do need help, I need fucking help. Uh, just just to get out of the mud and get the first one done, and then when the first one's done, one at a time. Well, you know? here I'll do this live. Um, my way of paying you back for all the support you've given veterans. You go get a bookkeeper. Uh, ask him how much it it'll take to get them done and I'll have my firm pay for the bookkeeper to do those 10 returns for you. Thank you, Philip. That's uh, given a lot to people and uh, you know, this is something that we can solve and it's uh, it won't be that much cash, but it's something uh, that'll get that off your plate. Thank you. Um, I will, I will accept that. Yeah, just find a bookkeeper, local bookkeeper, tell them that you like, this is what they do for a living. You just say, fuck, sort this out for me. And if they have any questions, they can call me or you, you know, on on your terms and they'll get it done. And then once they're done, it'll be a giant weight off. Won't cost that much. And uh, we'll sort that out. I've got a, I've got a book uh, keeper that I, uh, that I like and trust in town here. So thank Mm -hmm. you, Philip. That's, that's massive. And what we just experienced here and what we're demonstrating is true peer support you know um a member of our veteran community was complaining about i got this project and i just got to get it done to get my rental property up and running and i i just i just i'm just not doing it so i booked an appointment i got my tools we showed up and it took all of an hour to hang the piece of drywall or finish framing the Mm -hmm. closet or whatever it was because i used to be a carpenter it's showing up and giving that little bit of help to get him uh, get him out of the mud, and because um, because people get stuck, you know they get stuck and overwhelmed, and then it just sits, and then uh, that project will sit for ten years. <laughs> no, and then you feel, and then you beat yourself up because you like we were highly functional people. We're like, why I should be able to, you know, I, I just had this may or may not be stupid, but we should create a website just kind of called Help a Veteran Out. And people should be able to post what they're struggling with, like these type of things. And then we can encourage people in the community to look in and say, hey, I can help out with that. And I know there's a lot of good citizens out there who would just say, hey, I just need this little thing, right? And so any vet who's got something that's a a blockage or an obstacle from them can put it up there. And it's kind of like a GoFundMe, but a different different kind of idea for, for vets who just need a little help to get over the hump so they can get their, get their lives back. I'm just making a note of that because it's uh, absolutely brilliant. And it's amazing how many people are, are willing to help. Just yesterday, I threw out there um, an ambassador program for Tango mm-hmm. Romeo because I need, I need help. The, the resource you don't know about doesn't help you. Mm-hmm. So my audience yeah. has grown really, really well over uh, the last couple of years here. It'll be two years in August. Uh, 45 countries and all that, but there's almost nobody in the whole province of Manitoba that listens to this show. And yet other places there's, there's a lot of listeners. Um, Mm. So I'm like, okay, uh, how do I solve this? Because people need to know that this is a resource. And um, so I I put out, here's, here's what a a ambassador for Tango Romeo is. Uh, Here's the minimum expectations. And if you really feel like swinging for the fences, uh, uh, this would be great if you did this. And I put that out there on my different channels. And right off the bat, people are putting up their hands up saying, fuck yeah, I want to help. 
And um, there are people that are willing to help. So what a brilliant, brilliant idea, Philip, like Jesus. Uh, help yeah, we'll out. find a web designer like from your ambassadors or our community. Somebody would know how to build a quick website. We'll call it help a, help a vet out com or .ca, and then we'll just make it so vets can post, you know, what their struggles are, and then citizens can 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 kind of go fund me to help them out, you know, and there'll be some small ones and some bigger ones, and uh, we'll spread that on some channels. I'll spread it on my social media channels, and um, then we can look for a couple of uh, corporate sponsors that might uh, help it also. You know, okay. Home Depot would be would be brilliant. If Home Depot or the Canadian version of that, you know, kind of sponsored that, you know, like because vets are always swinging, swinging hammers, it'd be a great, yeah. uh, great act. And we could call it, I just wrote it down here, action based peer support. I just had yeah. a, a peer support expert on uh, last show, show before. Mm-hmm. And um, there are so many different types of peer support. But one of the easiest ways that doesn't take any skills, all you got to do is show up. <laughs> You know, yeah. is um, uh, because there's just so many examples of somebody just getting stuck in the, in the mud because they're overwhelmed and they just need. Some- you know, and at the same time on that website, people should be able to put in requests to, to ask, ask for veteran volunteers because we have so much to give, but it's hard to get out of the house. Right. So, you know, summer camps or, you know what I mean? Or something like that. If somebody, you know, so. Veterans could ask for help, but there could also be people who say, hey, I'm looking for a vet who could come and help out at the soup kitchen or do this. And, and that's that would engage us and, and make sure that we're doing our part to contribute to. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Frick, uh, we got to do this again, Philip. We're yeah. coming up with all kinds of good ideas. Now it's just a matter of uh, action items. And for anybody listening, uh, I'm, I'm going to expect this uh, one. We'll probably get 1,000 views by the time it's all done, maybe two or three, maybe five, who knows. But for anybody mm-hmm. that's uh, listening, don't wait for somebody else to do it. Uh, we've given some, some great ideas here. If uh, somebody wants to forge forward with help a vet out or uh, any of the things that we've been talking about here, please do so. There are so many ways to give back, so many ways to contribute and support um, this community for veterans and first responders. But uh, I, I, any, anything uh, that you want to share with the listeners here, Philip, before we close out? Uh, I'm trying to work on a kind of a hero's golf tournament in Ontario. Um, uh, you know, I gave during COVID, I gave first responders for a few months free wills because I felt like those people that were on the front lines fighting COVID uh, actually, in Ontario, I lobbied and was successful with Doug Ford getting first responders four bucks more an hour, like a danger pay. Like we got danger pay when we deployed. Sure. And I thought like the people in the ICUs or the or the ambulance people like at the beginning should get that. And so in Ontario, they did actually get that. So I want to build a, something that celebrates them. But if we do that golf tournament, I'll find a way uh, to fly you out and some of your ambassadors out, uh, you know, for some event like that to spread the word. Freaking spectacular. Well, we're all rolling, rolling in the same direction, Philip. And mm-hmm. um, it's the last five years, I think, with, from all the conversations that I have within this community, stigma has uh, been going away like, mm-hmm. and, and, and quickly. Help, mm-hmm. uh, help and resources have been increasing. But as there's more and more help and resources, there's more fractions as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, like, people just don't know where the fuck to go because everybody and their dog's got a one um, uh, doing something, you know. And mm-hmm. so there's this little organization and there's a big organization and yeah. another little one. Um, one of the things that this show does is it aggregates them. So I try to talk to mm-hmm. all of them if I can and get their story and, and what their offerings are. Uh, so that somebody can go through uh, the, the show list and go, that one, that's what I'm interested in. I want to learn about that. And yeah. um, it, it's a, sort of a one-stop shop as best as I know how to do. But My, the- final, uh, my final thought, I think, uh, you know, as an officer, I was at least smart enough to listen to the NCOs, but Sergeant, Wayne, uh, Sergeant Major Wayne Bartlett was this legend in the RCR, probably should have been a patrician, but. <laughs> uh, he had always said as an airborne guy, quiet professionalism. The one thing I would say to the veteran community is 
yes, we're vets. Yes, we should be recognized. But I think it's gone too far. I think as vets, we need to go out there and recognize other heroes rather than just kind of say, hey, pay attention to us. So let's celebrate the nurses. Let's celebrate the teachers. Let's celebrate the other first responders. And I think once we start saying it's not about us, it's let's find other heroes, that will bring us uh, to the next level. And I hope, I hope uh, we can all help that. Absolutely brilliant. Thanks so much uh, for for doing this. We've been um, in each other's orbit for a while now, and it's really, really good to to finally connect. All right. Thank you for what you do. Thank you, brother. And uh, stay in the line while we close out. Listening to Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Vodcast for veterans, first responders, and their families. everybody thanks for tuning in now i've got a favor to ask you and i know everybody asks for the same favor but it's really really important if you can help do your little bit by going to apple podcasts leaving a rating and a comment that would be awesome also on your favorite podcast platform whether that be spotify anchor google podcasts or whatever floats your boat and blows your hair back please click follow and if there's an option there for rating please do so and this is why every time you click like leave a rating leave a comment what happens is that it makes it easier for other people to find this podcast the help that you can't find doesn't help at all so help other people find this so that they can help themselves thank you thank you thank you and as always share share like the sugar bear because sharing is caring